You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Officials and players paid their annual visit to Mosley Hall. Cheetah on Saturday where the president of the club, Mr. J.H. Davies, and his wife and daughter entertained them. The English League trophy was presented to Mr. Davies. That was the report in the Manchester Courier in the early summer of 1908. Manchester United and their players were celebrating their first ever league title. It was only their second season back in the first division and the club had their hands on the trophy. Davies hosted a celebratory banquet at his massive mansion in Cheshire. All the players came, joined by their wives and partners. Davies and his wife had helped to create a family spirit at United, whereby the players socialised, as did their wives, and the fans were often included too. Davies used to visit the terraces to hear the opinions of fans, especially at Bank Street. He was constantly fascinated by their take on football and life, and saw them as the heart and soul of Manchester United Football Club. Welcome to United Through Time, a part two of episode three, John Henry Davies. This is the story of the man who saved Manchester United from extinction. This is the man who oversaw the change of name to Manchester United, who guided them to their first ever trophies and took United to Old Trafford, all with his own money. Going in chronological order, United Through Time focuses on the most important individuals at Manchester United since it was founded as Newton Heath in 1878. Part 1 of this episode saw United Through Time look at John Henry Davies' life and contribution to the club up until the summer of 1907, just after United's first season back in the top flight. Part 2 starts with United's first title win the following season. In that summer of 1908 at Davies' celebratory banquet, an event which would become a regular, much-anticipated occurrence over the following years, the portly man himself was presented with the league trophy by the chairman of the Football League, J.J. Bentley, a man also heavily involved in Manchester United. The players sprang a surprise on their hosts when captain Charles Roberts announced that his comrades had a little gift for Mr. Davies. This proved to be a handsome smoker's cabinet, while Roberts formally presented a silver fruit and flower stand to Mrs Davies and a handsome ink stand to Miss Elsie Davies. It was a nice gesture from the players who weren't earning much in those days, an issue that would come to the fore very soon in English football, with Davies and United at the very centre of it. In 1908, after United had just won the league, the Reds embarked on a European tour. It was the first overseas tour the club had ever gone on, and it's likely that the inspiration for it came from the manager, Ernest Magnell. However, it ties into the culture that John Henry Davies has helped to create already. The idea of making Manchester United the pride of Manchester and a symbol of the city on a global level, an institution. 
The European tour is a story all in itself and will be covered soon on United Through Time in another episode after it ended in dramatic circumstances in Hungary. But more important was what happened after that tour. Although United couldn't defend their title in 1909, they picked up more silverware and it was even bigger than the league. The FA Cup. Sandy Turnbull scored the only goal in the final against Bristol Rovers to give United the cup a little over half a decade since rival City had become the first Mancunian side to win it. Turnbull, the winning goalscorer, had been injured ahead of the final, but he and his teammates urged manager Magnell to let him play. It was a risk that paid off. That victory at the Crystal Palace football ground down in London with Stafford, with Davies and Harry Stafford and Louis Rocker as well in attendance made it two seasons in a row with a trophy, having won the league before. It was only seven years since Davies had rescued the club and his investment had seen United win the two biggest trophies in football and go on a tour to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But as the 1909-1910 season began, United were in turmoil. Back to December 1907 we go, before United's league triumph and FA Cup glory before the European tour. We're sitting in the Imperial Hotel, Manchester, owned by former captain Harry Stafford. United players Billy Meredith and Charlie Roberts are chairing the first ever meeting of the Players' Union. They are unhappy with caps on wages and signing on fees for playing, as well as the lack of choice they had over their own lives. We're in 1907 and football clubs currently decide which players stay and went and where and the players had no say at all whether they wanted to stay or go. Meredith is angry with the inability of players to defend themselves in the face of accusations such as when he had been accused of bribery a few years earlier and banned. And another big concern is injury and death of footballers on the pitch. Thomas Blackstock has only recently died while playing for Manchester United. And who was the union vice president? John Henry Davies. He clearly had a good relationship with the United players who wanted him on board. He was shrewd and respected and a valuable ally for the players' union. That appointment only made Davies more of an enemy of the Football Association, who absolutely despised him. He represented everything they didn't like, a self-made businessman who wasn't a member of the true aristocracy and who was pumping money into the football somewhat illegally and encouraging now greater player power. By 1909, the union had grown stronger. After a couple of high-profile cases, the FA were now concerned that players might begin to use striking as a tactic to get what they wanted. And so, instead of bowing to their demands and genuinely listening to them, they instead decided to issue an ultimatum that all players leave the union or face suspension from all football. A huge number of players followed the FA's ruling and left the union, scared of the consequences, and rightly so. But the players of Manchester United who had founded it, the FA Cup holders, the men at the heart of the union, the boys from the north stood firm. Captain Charlie Roberts refused to leave and encouraged his teammates to do the same. He arranged for them to train at the Manchester Athletic Ground in Fallowfield and after a photo was taken, the nickname The Outcasts FC was created and it's gone down in football history. When a photographer had come to take a team photo for the local paper, it was Roberts who quickly scrawled the name onto a plank of wood. This was the only team photo. United didn't pose with an FA Cup or the league title because they were too busy being outcast. United's show of strength, or at least their players' show of strength, encouraged others to come back to the players' union. It was August 1909, the season would kick off on September the 1st, and so players from Newcastle, Oldham, Everton announced that they would join the United players and rejoin the players' union. 
That was enough to force the FA to reverse their initial decision, and so the players' union was catapulted into huge significance, and its position became utterly unthreatenable. Davies, remember, was vice president and owner of United. Without his support, it's possible that the FA would have had their way. But no, he allowed his players to voice their opinions, and even encouraged it by agreeing to be vice president. And because of that, he made a difference. It was a whirlwind of an August month in 1909, and the tumultuous nature of the season would not end there. Within a few months, the red and white of Manchester United would adorn a stadium larger and grander than any other in the country. Old Trafford. Old Trafford, this is the of dreams. Will you please welcome Manchester United! Goosebumps, big nights, big lights, big names. Imagine all that, but for the first time. Not just for you, but for everyone. All 80,000 people. Well, February 1910, that's when it happened. Everyone descended on Trafford, coming by tram, car, foot, train to see the new stadium, Old Trafford. Promised to be the best in the land. 80,000 people, a gymnasium, offices, telephones, laundry rooms, plunge baths. Extravagant, expensive. £60,000 of John Henry Davies' own money, the equivalent today of around £7 million. At the beginning of the 1907-08 season, Manchester United resolved to look for a new ground. There had been matches when thousands of people had been locked outside of their current backstreet ground with not enough space, and more importantly than that, it was an absolute mud bath in the winter. When one reporter described it, he didn't hold back. Thirteen belching chimneys confronting the spectator in the grandstand, where steam in great volumes threatens to envelop the whole place at any point if the wind but swings round the west, where the playing pitch is but a bed of grit, though it rolls out as flat and as taking as a running track. So, there was plenty of reason to move. And also, United had just won the league and the cup. It was a perfect time to do so. They had cemented themselves as one of the biggest clubs in the country. The announcement was made, and within days, the location was officially chosen. It was almost as if it had been in the works for a long time, and it almost certainly was. John Henry Davies was an ambitious man, and a man who had been seeking to increase United's status, not just their on-field success. When he had taken over in 1902, he had instantly decided to invest huge amounts in the Bank Street ground, adding new plush seats, roofs to a couple of stands, better changing rooms, better referee rooms. A move to a larger ground was eventually inevitable. It was just a timing that wasn't known at that point in 1902. At Yuletide 1908, it was reported that Neither money nor care is to be spared in ensuring the comfort of players, officials and spectators. As the move to Old Trafford was confirmed. Four years earlier, the Manchester Brewery Company, owned by John Henry Davies, had bought a spot of land in Old Trafford. There had been serious questions over the purchase of this land that was of no obvious use to the company and came at quite some cost. But now it made sense. Davies was the director of the Manchester Brewery Company and the land was in the perfect spot for United. The move was symptomatic of the connections between business and league football, something that wasn't seen in other sports of the era like cricket. Davies owned United and basically owned the Brewery Company too. The Brewery Company bought the land and United leased it from them for a suspiciously cheap fee. As for the construction costs, well, that wasn't hidden. All of that came from John Henry Davies himself. The land where Davies had his house. There was a lot of salt found there. Uh, he sold that to ICI 
and the money was there to invest in Old Trafford, and uh, that's where the, the ground came from. So, Davies had raised £51,086 from selling land to a Mr Chamberlain and a Mr Levenstein, and he invested it straight back into Manchester United. He wanted it to be the best. The plans were extravagant to the extreme. Archibald Leach was hired. He was a famous stadium architect who had already been responsible for Ibrox and either before or after Old Trafford would be behind Anfield, Highbury, Bramall Lane, Craven Cottage, Deepdale, The Den, The Dell, Ewood Park, Fratton Park, Goodison Park, Hampton Park, Hyde Road, Hillsborough, Molyneux Park Avenue, Roker Park, Selhurst Park, Stamford Bridge, Twickenham, Villa Park, Valley Parade, White Hart Lane, Windsor Park and Breathe. Six of the eight grounds that would be used at the 1966 World Cup were designed by Archie Leach. And by that point, he'd already been dead for a quarter of a century. The list of his stadiums is ridiculous. But Old Trafford had some quite ridiculous plans itself. The initial demand was for 100,000 people. Now, 100,000 people had only attended a football game on three occasions. Some FA Cup finals only drew an audience of 40,000. These plans were hugely ambitious. That target of 100,000 would eventually be reduced to 80,000 to cut down on building costs. It was still enormous for a club like United. Plans were quite excessive, but this was John Henry Davies. There was no holding back. There was no going halfway. He was a visionary too. He saw the potential for football and for this many fans and went with it, with his own money. Why should Manchester not have a ground second to none in the land, a place that the club and the people can be proud of? Here is a great sporting population. The people are only waiting for someone to do it. Those were Davies' words, and it wasn't just in the capacity that he saw potential. The location was chosen perfectly for so, so many reasons. From Bank Street to Old Trafford was a move away from the north-east of Manchester, where the original club had been founded in Newton Heath. But it was right next to the emerging Manchester Ship Canal, which, by 1902, was the fifth largest port in the United Kingdom. Manchester had rid itself of its dependence on the cotton trade eight years earlier when the port had been opened. The ship canal followed the original bed of the River Irwell. The most important thing was what happened once the ship canal was opened. Sir Humphrey Francis de Trafford, head of the noble family who owned the area, was understandably perturbed when the quiet area he owned was radically changed by millions of tons of grain and other products being shipped through it every hour. And so... In 1896, two years after the ship canal had opened, he sold his estate. And he sold it to a group of people known as the Trafford Park Syndicate. The Trafford Park Estates Limited Company was born out of this. There were initial plans for an idyllic working village like Bourneville in Birmingham with villas, leisure centres, parks, a racecourse, workers' cottages as well as factories. But instead, Salford Keys was created. Director Marshall Stevens recognised the vast industrial potential of this area and by the time United were looking for a new stadium, the Trafford Park estate was an enormous hotbed of industry with thousands of workers employed. The de Trafford estate had been converted from a beautifully timbered deer park to this. This was the guts of Britain's industrialism. Smoke spouting chimneys, streets littered with poverty-stricken individuals. It would certainly not have escaped the attention of John Henry Davies that every Saturday at midday, factories would fling open their doors for the half day and thousands of workers would pour out from Trafford Park and the Salford Dockyards ready to be entertained. Who else should they be entertained by but the boys in red and white? Davies would have dreamed of the workers finishing work at noon, grabbing a pie, a pint and streaming into his brand new football ground. He spotted that, but he also noted that the trams in Manchester were becoming more and more common and popular. 
1902, Manchester's trams carried only 24 million passengers over the whole year. That was up to 206 million by 1913. Davies noticed how this could be used to attract fans to his stadium. These tram cars would shuttle down the road towards Stretford, Sale and Altrincham, passing this empty site, soon to be filled by Old Trafford. On the other side of what would soon be the stadium was a train line. John Henry Davies had found the perfect location for Manchester United, with fans aplenty and superb transport. He hired the most famous stadium architect in the world. He paid for it all. He, along with Archibald Leach, then tried to make the location even better by speaking with the local railway company about building a station right next to Old Trafford, something that now exists. They couldn't quite find the money to do it, but a station was built at Trafford Park, a little bit further down the line, but close enough. His foresight, which enabled the club, obviously, to move to, to Old Trafford. He had a, a business mind in him, so he, he, was, he was using everything within his power to make Manchester United a sort of team to be reckoned with, even, even back then. By 1909, construction was well underway and things were looking good. Leach had worked to create a genuinely coherent design for a football stadium. So many of the grounds in this era had been poorly designed for fans and lacked an ease of access. But Old Trafford was designed and thought out properly. There were lots of complaints in this era about fans not even being able to see the action because most big games, cup finals mainly, were held at athletics grounds or cricket grounds like Crystal Palace or the Oval. United's new stadium would be different. There would be big concourses for fans to move through freely, a good amount of gates everyone would be able to see well, and there'd be a variety of people cared for, both the regular worker and the VIP fan. Oh, and the prawn sandwich brigade. Davies vowed to build the most impressive stadium in the British Empire. Restaurants, lifts, bars included. On March the 8th, 1909, the Athletic News reported on the building of the new stadium. The rest of Manchester is destined to be the mecca of sportsmen of that great commercial city. The area now had Old Trafford Cricket Ground, Old Trafford Football Stadium, Apollo Ground, Curling Pond and the Manchester Gun Club. Davies and co were described as enterprising directors. And it was said that for football alone, there will not be a better enclosure in England. If the greatest matches of the day are not in turn decided to Manchester, we shall be surprised. The ground will be rectangle in shape with the corners rounded and it is designed so that everyone will be able to see. A glorious amphitheatre, every detail has been thought out. The executives of the club are to be congratulated on their spirited policy, which will no doubt be met with reward from the football public. The plans were approved on March 2nd, 1909, by Stretford District Council, with a couple of conditions relating to the building of a road and a railway bridge. A year or so later, the stadium was up and ready. Earlier, I said that Davies sought a benevolent cycle between on-pitch performances and attendances, and that football club's main profit was from those attendances. Well... This is Davies, a visionary and a long-term planner. He knew United could survive for some time, propped up by money of course, if they had a bigger stadium and could fit more people. They now just needed to ensure on-pitch performance was just as good as it had been for the last half a decade. This was one of Davies' biggest legacies, and not one that is mentioned very much. Because he was a businessman, he made this decision about entertainment, attacking football because he wanted more profit, but it helped shape something that United still stick to today, a tradition. The idea that the football being played on the pitch must be attractive, and that idea over success. Newton Heath, before Davies arrived, had been known as a team of brutes and violent men. Davies had changed that to an attractive team because he wanted to attract the fans more. These days, that ideal is about tradition, not profit, but it all comes from Davies. 
It was later exaggerated and made better by Sir Matt Busby, Sir Alex Ferguson, Tommy Doherty and all those who followed. On the 22nd of January 1910, Tottenham Hotspur came to Bank Street. They were the last visitors to the old ground. 5,000 came to say their goodbyes and United won 5-0. The reserves would continue to play there until 1912. But now it was the moment of Old Trafford's opening game. The most handsomest, the most spacious and the most remarkable arena I have ever seen. As a football ground, it is unrivaled anywhere in the world, said one reporter in the Sporting Chronicle. There was a sense of anticipation across Manchester and Salford on the day of February 10th, 1910. Traffic was particularly heavy in Stratford. Men in flat caps rode the trams, ambled down the ship canal, ran onto trains that were chugged down towards Trafford Park Station. Other men, wealthier in pristine suits, boarded horse and cart and made their way down the Warwick Road to Old Trafford. 50,000 in dreamland, taking it all in. Stepping through the red gates that admitted them into this new arena and taking a breath, admiring the sheer size of the ground that swallowed them up. Red and white courted corner flags fluttering in the afternoon breeze, an immaculate green pitch with the sun shining down on it, waiting to be pounded by the heavy boots and leather ball that would soon come out. Sitting in the stands was a group of fans with a red and white umbrella, emblazoned with the black lettering reading, The Rocker Brigade. Liverpool ruined Manchester United's fine day, beating them 4-3 in a dramatic match. The anticipation in Manchester was huge, but the reporting of the day was oddly minimal. Most papers focused on the FA Cup third round instead, while even the Manchester Guardian listed the game as being at Anfield. Such was the lack of interest in it from the national papers. It was down to sports editions like the Athletic News or the Sporting Chronicle to cover it properly. So United started off badly, but then they beat Sheffield United 1-0 at home and won another six games at Old Trafford before the 1909-10 season came to an end. A season that had started in turmoil but ended with relative calm. By the time the campaign had finished, they'd not only settled into life in their new massive stadium, but had made it a fortress. United would only lose once at home over the next 18 months. Over those next 18 months, more success would arrive at United's door, which of course had now been moved from Clayton to Trafford. It was the 1910-11 season, the first full season at Old Trafford, and Ernest Magnall's final triumph as boss at United was going to come. The Reds became champions for a second time. Not quite as comfortably as the first time. They actually relied upon Liverpool to give them the title. Now United's bitter rivals, of course, Liverpool beat Aston Villa to allow United to become champions, with Magnus side beating Sunderland 5-1 at home. Enoch West, a new signing, scored 19 goals. United would also win the charity shield that season. Harold House scored a double hat-trick. And so, it had been nine years since John Henry Davies had taken a liking to Harry Stafford's St Bernard dog, since he'd knocked accountant George Lawton off his bicycle, since he'd learnt about the struggles of Newton Heath. And in those nine years, so much had happened. Newton Heath had become Manchester United. United had changed their colours to red and white. United had won the league, twice. They'd won the FA Cup, once. They'd built the finest stadium in the country in Old Trafford, all of it financed by John Henry Davies. But as Manchester United moved past the decade mark in Davies' ownership, things started to fall off. It's also important to mention that many United fans and football commentators were unhappy with the move to Old Trafford. Davies got serious flack about the move. Critics claimed that he'd sold the club's soul, that the support from Bank Street would never come back to United and never travel across the city to Old Trafford, that the move was to feed his own ego rather than secure the club's future. 
It's certainly true that ego would have played a part in Davies' decision, and the critics would continue to exist for some time. For now, though, there were bigger issues than complaints about the stadium. The move to Old Trafford meant that Manchester United started the 1911-12 season with the best president, the best manager, the best players and the best stadium in England. But rather than those circumstances leading to them consolidating success and cementing their place in the elites, the stadium ushered in a period of darkness. Only Aston Villa and the Wednesday had managed to retain a title before, and so it was no surprise that United failed to do so. Instead though, they plummeted from 1st to 13th. Magnol's team fell apart. They suffered heavy thrashings and United wouldn't win the title for 41 years. Around this time, the Football Association came back to try and rip John Henry Davies' control away from him. He remained a hated figure in the upper echelons of the FA. They looked into United's finances and discovered that Davies was indeed the sole benefactor of the club and had total control. Clubs were unofficially required to have shared control and not be reliant upon one wealthy man, quite sensibly. An FA report on the matter came out in 1910 and it was decided that the FA would oversee Manchester United's accounts until November 1911. Any rampant investment to build on the title-winning side would have to be paused. And with that, the club's minutes revealed, about a month later, that they intended to negotiate the transfers of several players in view of the financial position of the club. By 1912, only two years after Old Trafford had opened its doors, the club were in trouble. They had already paid off an impressive £12,000 of debt on the ground, but their championship winning side was broken up. The talismanic Charlie Roberts was sold to Oldham Athletic. Managerial great Ernest Magnall moved to Manchester City after resigning in 1912. Perhaps he felt guilty for taking four of their finest players back in 1906. Harold House joined Chelsea in the same year that Magnall departed. Harry Modger, the goalkeeper who once went 10 games without conceding, left too. By 1913, the brilliant back line of Duckworth, Roberts and Bell were all gone. Davies' theory of good on-the-pitch performances creating big crowds was fundamentally true. And with the 13th place finish, the manager and some of the best players gone, he couldn't fulfil that aim. JJ Bentley took charge as manager and helped steer United to a 4th place finish, but the enthusiasm was gone. Crowds dropped to 15,000 and City became Manchester's biggest club once more. United's time in the spotlight was gone. An ageing backbone, an expensive stadium, and then World War I. In the 1913-14 season, United had only just avoided relegation by one point. War started the season after, and it was terrible for United. Players left to go and fight, and resources were limited. United won only nine out of their 38 games in that first war season. Jack Robson became manager in December 1914 and then football was suspended. United had to pay running costs for Old Trafford during the war, despite very little football being on. The combination of vastly reduced crowds, many fewer fixtures and heavy war taxation was creating the start of a far more serious financial crisis. The presence of John Henry Davies meant there was no threat of extinction or bankruptcy or anything close to be fair, but that, Davies, was the only block. And over the whole world rose a pian and clamour of hysterical joy at the end of the horrible struggle. Paris, London, New York. On November the 11th, 1918, an armistice was signed and World War I came to an end. 
Men and women gathered in the streets of Manchester, just like they did in London, Paris and New York, to celebrate. Waving hats filled the air, smiles greeted everyone as they moved down the packed streets. Britain had been hurt for four years. Football had too, of course. But now, more than ever, people were desperate to return to the grounds to watch their beloved sport once again. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Big crowds greeted the return of football for the 1919-20 season, but not at Old Trafford. A quarter of a million people watched the first day of the First Division programme upon its return, but only 13,000 turn up to see the Reds against Sheffield United at Old Trafford. Davies must have been seriously concerned. After the criticism he'd taken for the move, he needed big crowds to prove him right. He had to prove that it benefited the club, not only his ego. And these early low attendances after the war helped that ego theory. But thankfully for him, the low numbers was partly down to it being race day at nearby Castle Irwell. 20,000 came to see Preston two weeks later and 50,000 crammed in to see the derby against Manchester City in October. Davies' decision had been justified. The United that greeted these many supporters was not the United that people loved though. They finished 12th that season. The next year saw a 13th place finished and only 40 points from 42 games. The great Billy Meredith rejoined Manchester City to be reunited with Magnell. United manager Jack Robson didn't have huge funds for transfers as Magnell had done. And his side wasn't the most attractive in the country either. To survive he needed a bold and imaginative philosophy. 
So he desperately searched for fresh-faced talents rather than ready-made stars. That had always been necessary since the move to Old Trafford. Robson found defenders Jack Silcock and Charlie Moore, halfback Lau Hilditch and the legendary striker Joe Spence. It wasn't enough to get United back at the top, but Robson's endless search kept United in the first division, for a while at least. One of the big problems for Robson, and then his successes later on, was the inflation in the transfer market. Because of the post-war football boom, the prices for players had gone up massively. United didn't want to waste any more money when the market was in this state. And so they didn't. They were trying to wait it out. They had great debt still to pay, even though United were now used to crowds of 40,000 plus. Robson had done well to find players like Spence and Silcock, but there was no doubt that United needed more. But the board didn't want to invest, still. That was until Davies saw the crowd of 50,000 that turned up on the opening day of the season for a 3-2 defeat to Bolton Wanderers. That game alone generated £3,300 in gate receipts and Davies gave manager Jack Robson £5,000 to improve the side. When I saw that crowd, I made up my mind that if new players were needed, we would get them, no matter what the cost. He had the right intentions. He always had. He wanted to give back to the fans who had loyally supported United since the war, but it didn't go that well. Of the signings, Harry Leonard was too slow, Harrison was a poor player, and Miller was looking okay, looking good, but remained unproven. A lot of money, and not huge rewards. At the back end of part one, it was mentioned that John Henry Davies helped to start the bitter rivalry with Manchester City. Now of course there had always been a rivalry, two local clubs, the two biggest in the area, both had won the FA Cup in the early 1900s, both had challenged for the title, some had won it, both had Billy Meredith and Ernest Magnell. But it had always been relatively friendly. Almost everyone would watch both sides and most would be pleased in Manchester when either side won. People supported Manchester rather than City or United. But a decision from John Henry Davies in the 1920s saw that relationship rapidly deteriorate. The Blues were playing at Hyde Road at this point. They'd been there for a while and Davies knew of how overcrowded the stadium could get and so he offered them the chance to use Old Trafford for free to make it the home of Manchester's football, owned by United but used by both teams, like the San Siro in Milan. Quite reasonably, City declined the offer, although it was a good one. Hyde Road was burned down a couple of weeks later. City would need to rebuild their stadium or at least a large part of it. They then asked Davies if they could now take up his offer of free use of Old Trafford. But Davies made a very, very different offer. He insisted that if they were to play at Old Trafford, they could only take the same amount of money from gate receipts as they had done in the previous seasons at Hyde Road. The surplus would go to him and United. City obviously didn't like this idea, so turned it down. They were furious that United had changed their minds, changed their option, but United weren't a charity and Davies was a businessman. It was a reasonable request from him. He wasn't going to give his rivals free money. But he was hammered in the press for it. They sided with City, who had had their ground burned down, of course, and criticised United for not helping their neighbours. And so, the derby came round in November 1920, with tensions at an all-time high. As I said, it had all been pretty friendly up to this point. But United now welcomed 63,000 fans in at Old Trafford, vindicating Davies' decision to build the stadium as the sides drew 1-1. A week later, United travelled to Hyde Road and were spanked 3-0 by City. It was their first defeat at Hyde Road since 1906 and was symbolic of their change in fortunes. 
Davies finally saw his new stadium hit a 70,000 crowd a month later, on December the 27th, 1920. 70,504 people watched Manchester United versus Aston Villa at Old Trafford, and that was a record that, amazingly, stood until April 2006. 86 years. In 1922, United went on to only win 8 of their 42 matches in Division 1 and were relegated. Robson had left halfway through the season, having been at the club since the war had begun. John Chapman took over to try and arrest the poor spell of form, but United finished 22nd and conceded 73 goals. Davies was now getting older. He had taken a step back after the war. He was, of course, still heavily involved, but he wasn't quite the omnipotent president he had once been. Why he decided to do less we can't be sure of. It was possible that he'd felt he'd invested enough money in it. He'd risked it all and United had got to the top. Maybe he didn't want to climb the mountain all over again. He might have also thought it was time the club ran itself a bit more. He hadn't charged any interest on the money he had freely invested before and United needed to learn to be sustainable. As John Henry Davies was getting older, he was seeing Manchester United deteriorate. Figures of the past like Meredith, Magnell and even Stafford had all moved on. In Division 2, United finished fourth in their first season. Manager John Chapman brought in Frank Barson from Villa. He had become United captain and very important. But they had no real big names, no big name manager either. After Chapman came in, they were up for promotion back into the top flight, but fell at the end with late season defeats to Blackpool and Leicester. The next season they finished 14th. They recovered. They signed Tom Jones and Jimmy Hansen and others, players who would contribute in a big way to help United back to Division 1. They won 23 of their 42 games the next year and finished second behind Leicester City to go back up. Once in Division 1, they finished in a very respectable ninth place. City were relegated but managed to beat United in the FA Cup semi-final. Ups and downs for both teams. It was the last good season that John Henry Davies would see. His health was deteriorating significantly and had been for two or three years. He went to fewer games and was living in Clangdudno in North Wales. The next year was disappointing. United had three managers in a single season, Chapman being suspended by the FA for improper conduct and neither the other two who came to replace him could guide United to glory. A 15th place finished and an FA Cup third round appearance was it. The largest crowd of the season, though, was 50,000 at Old Trafford. Apart from the audiences, United were in a downward spiral, and the owner was too. John Henry Davies passed away in Landudno on the 24th of October, 1927. The last Manchester United match he would have heard about before his death was a 5-0 win at Old Trafford against Derby County. Joe Spence scored a hat-trick. You only have to look at what happened after the death of Davies to show how important this man was. There had been no half measures under John Henry Davies. Even when he stepped back after World War I, he had propped up the club with interest-free loans. At the annual general meeting that followed his death in December 1927, the club insisted that they had a secure financial position. They couldn't have been more wrong. His wife Amy had to come to the rescue in 1929, and provided the money to sign George McLachlan as a gift. In the summer of 1931, she'd come back to help, providing £5,000 more. But even within a few months of that, United had faltered and were close to bankruptcy on Christmas Day 1931, when army uniform manufacturer James W. Gibson had to come in and save them. 
Davies was a visionary of a man, a portly man, a self-made man who gave back. Not only did he pump money into Manchester United, but he would make sure that the local charities were supported by the club. He donated gate receipts from public practice matches and the amount taken at the gate would be matched by the same amount from his own pocket. A lot of money for charity. He could be ruthless, but he was generous. He never played by the rules and so incurred the wrath of the Football Association on a number of occasions. He made underhand illegal payments, used dodgy practices to make the best he could of Manchester United. It did work. He drew the wrath of officials, players, managers, fans, journalists over the years, but they realised his impact eventually. The United programme editor wrote after Davies passed away, There was a time when I could not stand John Henry Davies, but I am inclined to think that the truth was that he was too big of a man for us to understand. When John Henry Davies had signed James Higson in February 1902 for Newton Heath, it was to prove his commitment to the board of directors. There is no doubting his commitment. Over the next 25 years, Davies' investment into the players and into stadiums made Manchester United a team recognised throughout the country. The purchase of players like Meredith, Turnbull, House, Wall, Modger and others led to United's first triumphs, two league titles, an FA Cup and two charity shields. In the midst of all those successes came the move to Old Trafford, the finest football ground in the world, the football ground that Manchester United still play at. Davies wanted three things on the pitch itself. He wanted success, of course, but he also wanted a team of Manchester men to make Manchester proud. And finally, he wanted a team that entertained its spectators. He knew that that's how the club would survive, by playing attractive football. It's a legacy that still lives on, just like Old Trafford does. By the time he died, as Justin Blundell writes, the choices of others at Manchester United had created a dark cloud over the brilliance of the first side that Davies's drive and money had helped to create. The Magnal days had been forgotten. The years of stagnation that followed had allowed the giant that Davies had given birth to to fall asleep. That cloud over United would grow ominously darker over the 1920s and when Davies died in 1927, it doubled in size and potency. Here is a great sporting population. Davies had said of Manchester as a city. Under his presidency, he created an institution to be proud of, a team of Manchester men to make Manchester proud. Under his presidency, the club won every honour there was to win, swapped a fume-ridden ground in Clayton for a swanky Stretford-based Old Trafford, and in the month leading up to Davies's death, the club paid off its final debts on Old Trafford and now owned the whole thing. From blue and white of Newton Heath at Bank Street, with a sole success being the Manchester Senior Cup, to Manchester United playing in red and white at glamorous Old Trafford, John Henry Davies's legacy is enormous and long-lasting. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of United Through Time. In the late 20th century, the great-granddaughter of John Henry Davies discovered, with the help of her mother, the influence of the wealthy brewer on Manchester United. They did some digging and were invited to Old Trafford. Joe Jones's mother unveiled a plaque dedicated to J.H. Davies and Joe and her son were given a hospitality lunch by then-chairman Martin Edwards. And then they met someone special. Mum unveiled a plaque in the way you walk through onto the pitch. And we met David Beckham. I remember us sitting there. Martin Edwards said, now, this, this boy's up and coming. And there was this spotty youth in the corner Looking David Beckham. And I was like looking, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was Mark Hughes was there and um, Eric Cantona and, you know, and it was just amazing. And then this like young lad who looked a bit timid because I think he must have been about, I don't know how old Beckham is, but he was about 16, 17 or something because my son was 12, you know. And 
surreal, really. You know, and they were so thrilled to get mum to unveil the plaque. And we had like a lovely hospitality and all that. And it was just, they were just interested to meet us, really. Elsewhere down the family line, Elsie Partington, a granddaughter of John Henry Davies, still owned shares in Manchester United as late as at least 2002, a century on from when Davies saved the club from extinction, which seems appropriate. Thank you for listening to this episode of United Through Time. This has been episode three, John Henry Davies. Now football is a pleasant game, played in the sun, played in the rain, and the team that gets me excited, Manchester United, Manchester, Manchester United. From now on, there'll be a short break in episodes solely focusing on individuals, unfortunately. I'm away in South America for four months, but you're still here from United through time. Next up is a shorter episode, looking at Manchester United's first venture into Europe. Ernest Magnall was at the helm, John Henry Davies was in charge, Louis Rocker was a kit man and scout, and the Reds visited the Austro-Hungarian Empire. That's up next on United Through Time. This podcast was written, produced and hosted by me, Harry Robinson. A great thanks to my multiple guests, firstly to Ian McCartney, who provided fantastic insight into Davies and particularly into the move to Old Trafford. Secondly, I want to thank Joe Jones, a relative of Davies himself, for speaking to me. And also a thank you to Gary James and Ian Gardner, whose voices were used for a second consecutive episode after their help on episode two. The biggest thank you, though, goes to those listeners who have left reviews on iTunes and ratings. The feedback, uh, which is thankfully mainly positive so far, is much appreciated. And remember to share this podcast however you can on Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp, Reddit, or even by using your mouth in a real-life conversation. If you've enjoyed this episode, check out episodes one and two on Louis Rocker and Harry Stafford, respectively. Get sharing and follow United Through Time on Twitter at, at UTD Through Time to keep updated or check out our website at unitedthroughtime.com. Cheers for listening. Goodbye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.